Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldicott, and in this program we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well-being. So if you love this planet, keep listening. Hello and welcome to If You Love This Planet. My special guest today is Robert Alvarez, a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he is currently focused on nuclear disarmament, environmental and energy policies. Between 1993 and 1999, Mr Alvarez served as a senior policy advisor to the Secretary and Deputy Assistant Secretary for National Security and Environment. While at the Department of Energy, he coordinated the effort to enact nuclear worker compensation legislation. He coordinated nuclear material strategic planning for the department and established the department's first asset management program. Bob was awarded two Secretariat gold medals, the highest awards given by the department. Bob Alvarez is an award-winning author and has published articles in prominent publications such as Science Magazine, The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, Technology Review and The Washington Post. He joins me now. Welcome, Bob Alvarez, to If You Love This Planet. Thank you for having me on your show. Now, I want to reminisce just slightly to introduce a personal note into this interview, Bob. I first met you in my kitchen in Commonwealth Avenue, Newton, Massachusetts, in about 1976 when you appeared, and you were absolutely gorgeous, tall, dark, handsome, (laughs) (laughs) and you were a guitar player, and you were absolutely lovely, and your wife Kitty, uh, Kitty Tucker, had been one of the lawyers representing Karen Silkwood in her trial, I think, or had been involved in the trial. that's right. So that's how we got acquainted, and you've been on the case ever since. So has Kitty Tucker, and so have I. So we go back a lot, what, like nearly 40 years, Bob? Yeah, it's getting on there. (laughs) So (laughs) with that very personal introduction, and I must say you are are very yummy. Um, I want to move on now. We, We will discuss, first of all, Building four at um, at the Fukushima nuclear reactor complex and what is going on there, and then we're going to move into the new uh, uh, National Defence Authorisation Act set up by Congress. Let's talk about building four, Bob. You wrote a piece recently in April about uh, what is happening there, and it was published in the Huffington Post and received over nine thousand comments. Give us a summary of where that situation is at the moment. Well, um, I think that the the bottom line as to what's happening at the uh, Fukushima nuclear site is, uh, despite all the reassurances that that we've received uh, from Tokyo Electric Power Company, Japanese government, and others, that this disaster is far from over and that uh, one of the most, uh, I think, near-term dangers that, uh, the, that we face uh, is the fact that there is a very large amount of 
spent uh, reactor power reactor fuel that's sitting in a reactor uh, reactor number four uh, that's about a hundred feet off the ground in a structurally damaged building in a high uh, consecrate earthquake zone, which the uh, the geological experts of Japan, Europe, and the United States have concluded uh, is likely to have a reoccurrence, perhaps even closer to the site. So um, the the um, it's it's starting to sink in. You know, the New York Times is now starting to report this information and uh, more of the mainstream media outlets. But the that it's starting to sink in that the irradiated nuclear fuel is stored in the spent fuel pools amidst the reactor ruins, particularly in this one reactor, uh, poses greater dangers than the molten cores and actually may uh, result in a much larger release of radioactivity than the accident that unfolded last year. Uh, beginning on March 11th. And this is why uh, there are about uh, nearly nearly 11,000 spent fuel assemblies sitting in pools vulnerable to future earthquakes at the site. And this spent fuel contains roughly 85 times more uh, intermediate and long-lived radioactivity than released at Chernobyl. <clears throat> Several of these pools are about 100 feet above the ground, and, uh, and are completely open, open to the atmosphere uh, because the reactor buildings were demolished by explosions. And the concerns is that the pools could topple, possibly topple or collapse uh, from structural damage caused by another powerful earthquake. And even if the pools don't collapse, if there is uh, another event like a large earthquake that causes the water to drain from the pool, this could result in the overheating of the spent fuel because it's very, very radioactive. And as it uh, de- as the radioactivity decays, it gives off a great deal of thermal heat. And eventually this will cause the, the metal cladding or tubing around the fuel itself to essentially spontaneously combust and catch fire. And then you would have a... Uh, uh, what a colleague of mine refers to as a Chernobyl on steroids type accident, where uh, a very large amount of, of of radioactive materials could be deposited over hundreds, if not thousands, of miles. So this is of concern, and the the main concern right now, the most immediate concern, is this one reactor, uh, number four, which has about one thousand three hundred thirty-one spent fuel assemblies. Uh, in the pool, uh, sitting in the structurally damaged building, exposed to the open sky. Um, and now I think there's, you know, this is now becoming uh, much more of a prominent concern because, uh, for the reasons I outlined. Yes. Um, not only that, but if Building 4 did collapse with its spent fuel pool full of all these incredibly radioactive rods, and the release of radiation was such that the whole area would probably have to be evacuated because no one could work there anymore because it would be absolutely too dangerous. Would you like to extrapolate upon that scenario, Bob Alvarez? Well, in, in 1980, in, I'm sorry, in 2003, now I'm sort of going too far in the past, but in 2003, uh, several colleagues and I uh, published a, a very detailed analysis of the uh, of the hazards uh, and what to do about them associated with 
spent fuel pools at reactor sites in the United States. And what we did is that we, we basically uh, took a deep dive, as they say, into the uh, last 35, 40 years of the nuclear safety literature that's been generated mostly by government funding into this specific matter. And we pointed out that <clears throat> that if uh, water were, were to be caught, were, were to drain from the pools, either by uh, events like earthquakes or acts of malice, for example, we were, at that time we were pointing out uh, the, the potential uh, vulnerabilities of terrorist acts, yeah. that, <clears throat> that, uh, that depending on how much radioactivity was in the pool itself, uh, that there would there there could be a fire, a radiological fire, a catastrophic fire, that could render an area uh, as much as sixty times larger, uninhabitable than that created by the Chernobyl accident. What would that be? Uh, the size of Pennsylvania or bigger? Oh, uh, it'd be let's say in the United States, it would be maybe three three to four times the size of uh, the state of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And you uh, mean, it would be an enormous area. And you uh, mean uninhabitable, and, absolutely, it would be an exclusion zone. No one could ever live there again. It would be so radioactive. That's correct. And what we did is we did, the, we did the modeling that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the industry used. We used all the sort of the standard techniques to sort of estimate these, these damages. And what happened was that, of course, it caused a considerable amount of controversy in this country at that time, and our study was was essentially criticized and denounced by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission of and, the, and the nuclear industry. But it created such controversy that the, that the United States Congress uh, asked our National Academy of Sciences to sort out the controversy. Mm-hmm. So you know, we, we presented our point of view, our critics presented their point of view, and after about a year, uh, the Academy basically uh, concluded that we were correct, that um, you could not take this problem lightly, that uh, an act of malice or an event such as an earthquake or, or, or even a reactor accident in and of itself might cause water to drain and result in a catastrophic release of radioactivity. And what's of concern is a uh, radioactive isotope known as cesium-137, uh, it constitutes about 40% of the total radioactivity in the spent fuel. Uh, it has a half-life of about of, of 30 years, which means that uh, if it's in if it's deposited in the uh, in the environment in large concentrations that are dangerous to people, that uh, the rule of thumb is it takes about 10 half-lives for this material to decay to a level that's presumed to not be harmful. So we could be looking at levels of contamination of such severity that it could take many decades, if not uh, centuries, to, uh, to, be, to be habitable for humans. Um, the other thing about cesium-137 is that in addition to giving off penetrating radiation as it decays in the form of what they call gamma rays, which are similar to X-rays that pass right through your whole body, it also gives off beta radiation as well. And when it when it interacts in the environment, in biota or food and human beings, uh, it mimics potassium. So if it enters your body through chronic exposure from ingestion or inhalation, particularly ingestion of food, um, over a period of time, uh, your body thinks considers it to be potassium, 
and, and, and it sort of distributes in your body, in your muscle tissue, in your endocrine system. Uh, and one of perhaps the most important muscle tissue in your body is the, is the heart. So, uh, and we're just beginning to sort of have some glimpses of what the consequences are of the Chernobyl accident relative to this, this very nasty isotope. Uh, and what, how it will sort of unfold in Japan, uh, you know, I think that the, 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 the warnings that are coming out of the studies at Chernobyl uh, should, should provide some, some new sobering information that hopefully will, will inform people to take better protective action. Yes, no. But it is a very nasty material, and it is the key material, in my opinion, because it is so volatile that it can escape from a spent fuel fire. Yeah. Well, for instance, Bob Alvarez, um, I've just been at Cape Cod um, and given a talk there about the Pilgrim nuclear reactor, which stands at the entrance of Cape Cod. Cape Cod fills up with people during the summer, which is like now. Um, and a te- that's a very old reactor. It's 40 years old nearly. It's the same design as the Mark 1G reactors um, at Fukushima. Um, and the NRC, in its wisdom, and I'm being sarcastic now, has just decided that it can be relicensed and extend its lifespan for another 20 years, which is in itself incredibly dangerous. But how much spent fuel is is in the cooling pools there at that reactor, Bob? And are the cooling pools on the roof of Pilgrim like they are up at Fukushima? The answer uh, to your first question is that there is about four to five times more spent fuel densely compacted in that pool than at the reactor number four at Fukushima. Four to five times. Uh, four to five times as much spent fuel. I would have thought there'd be more because the uh, uh, building number four in Fukushima, that's only one load, isn't it, of reactor No, no, fuel? no. The building Fukushima is several Oh, uh, several loads. loads. But they've been putting yeah. this stuff in the cooling pool at Pilgrim for over 30 years. There must be more than that. Well, they've been putting it in the pools, and then when they run out of storage space, because there, you know, there is a finite amount you can, yeah. you can tightly pack into the pool, they then uh, move spent fuel out to make more room for fresh material and then put that older material into what are called dry casks. casks. So, uh, but you... But uh, there's about four to five times more spent fuel uh, in the uh, in the pool at, at um, the Pilgrim reactor, and it is about a hundred feet off the ground. Oh, it is about uh, the ground. And, it, and the spent spent fuel pools, see, were never intended to be uh, or designed to to be indefinite storage facilities, which is what they are here and in other places in the world. And because of that, you know, they were only intended to hold the spent fuel for a period of a few years, five years at the most, to allow the what they call the short-lived isotopes to decay away so that it wouldn't be so thermally hot and radioactive that would allow the spent fuel to be put somewhere else. And at that time, to somewhere else was to send to a reprocessing plant where they would extract the plutonium and uranium and attempt to recycle those materials. That entire scheme has collapsed in the United States more than 30 years ago. It's collapsing in Japan as we speak, uh, and it's not working out all that well. It's collapsed in England, and it's not working all that well for France. So um, as a result of the pools not, not 
being designed to be interim storage. They do not have the same degree of protection that's required as for reactors. Mm. The reactors are required to have this uh, secondary thick shield of concrete and steel uh, over the reactor vessel that serves as a barrier when there's a large release. Well, the spent fuel pools do not have that. Uh, the reactor is is required to have what they call defense in depth. That means redundancy in terms of electrical supplies and pumps and water supplies, things like that. Spent fuel pools are not required to have any of that. In fact, in this country, we are just beginning to get around to requiring the instrumentation that tells you how much water's in the pool. Oh, my pool, God. <laughs> uh, things like that be connected to control rooms of our reactors. That's unbelievable. So they're basically, they're basically, they were basically considered short-term warehouses yeah. for this very radioactive material that would be moved out. Now, because of the failure of reprocessing and the inability to find a permanent uh, deep geological disposal site, something that we've been struggling to do in this country for over 50 years. Uh, the reality is that these reactors are becoming, uh, are basically generating some of the largest concentrations of radioactivity on the planet, and they're storing them in facilities, to some of which just have tin roofs on them. Oh, it's nuts. And just and are housed in structures that you would find at car dealerships. Car dealerships. Just briefly, the reactor at Columbia um, up at the Hanford Reservation, um, that's an old reactor too. Is that a Mark 1G reactor number one and number that's two? A, the Columbia Generating Station is a Mark II reactor in which it has the same design features as those as Pilgrim and the, the Fukushima reactor. And how it's, much uh, spent fuel is stored there? Oh, they have... Uh, oh, I don't have the numbers, but no, they have... About. about. Uh, in terms of the amount, they have approximately uh, 150 to 200 million curies of intermediate long-lived radioactivity in the pool, of which about 40% is cesium-137. So uh, it's got uh, as much um, uh, cesium-137 in it than was released by um, more than, than was released by all atmospheric nuclear weapons. All tests, atmospheric nuclear weapons tests. And is that on the roof? One pool. And but, is that yeah, pool I mean, on the roof? And it's got it's got a it's it's basically it doesn't require these redundant safety features, uh-huh. uh, and 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 does not have uh, what you call secondary containment, no backup water supplies, no instrumentation from the pool to the control rooms, uh, and they are squeezing the spent fuel together even closer. There, the spent fuel in the pools are about as close as they are in a reactor. And for that reason, they have to do things to prevent what they call recriticalities or for the, the, the fissioning of the spent fuel to reoccur, which is a very, very dangerous thing to happen. So they, they have, the nuclear industry in this country and elsewhere have done things that, uh, to prevent that by putting them into these sort of box-like structure, structures that are made of, uh, of, of uh, composites of boron, which are to prevent the, uh, to, to block the neutrons. And the problem we pointed out in our 2003 paper is that if the water were to drain using, uh, with this high density spent fuel in these, what they call, surrounded by neutron absorbing panels, the neutron absorbing panels as the water drains would become de facto thermos bottles. 
and could actually accelerate the heat that would cause the cladding, the zirconium, to spontaneously combust at around 800 to 1,000 degrees centigrade. And then you're kind of, it's sort of like a Roman candle kind of situation, except it's involving it in a, 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 a um, unprecedented amount of radioactivity that could be released to the environment. And that's Chernobyl on steroids. So is the, is the spent fuel pool at the Columbia Generating Station on the roof as well? That's correct. A hundred feet above. Now, one last comment and we'll We move. have 31 reactors in this country that have that same design feature. Yeah, it's nuts. So in that context, we see that J- Greg Jasko has resigned as chairman of the NRC, the only man, I think, with integrity who stood up against the four other commissioners in the NRC who all represent the nuclear industry. That's very clear. Um, he had integrity, and I admired that man. Um, tell us what you think about the new appointment, um, Bob Alvarez, Alison McFarlane, who is a geologist and who was on the Blue Ribbon Commission on working out what to do with America's radioactive well, waste. I what mean, do you I, think of the uh, new appointment? I've known Alison for several years and consider her a colleague. Uh, she was a co-author on our uh, spent fuel study. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, she understands these kinds of problems, and I think she will bring to the commission a certain level of awareness and understanding about spent fuel, and especially about geology, uh, not only in terms of, of the proper way to dispose of this material, but also uh, issues involving earthquakes and things like that, which uh, have proven to be uh, of, of great importance relative to the nuclear safety of, of, of nuclear power plants. So I see, I have some hope in, in her ability to uh, be a, a, a good replacement for uh, for Dr. Yatsko. I do too, and I know Alison myself and her wonderful husband, Hugh Gustafson, the anthropologist who I've interviewed several times on this program. However, Alison says she is supportive of nuclear power. Do you think she really is? Well, I think the issue, you know, the... The politics of, of nuclear power in this in this country, especially with respect to the Congress, is that um, if you are critical of nuclear power, uh, no matter how legitimate your criticism is, uh, you're instantly painted with this uh, brush of being anti-nuclear. It's sort of almost a, a test of your your theologic theologic belief in nuclear power, and. Uh, so you often hear people say, oh, I'm an agnostic about nuclear yeah. power. Yeah. It has its religious connotation to it. And so um, the fact of the matter is that the politics in our country are are so uh, have been, in many respects, so corrupted by money and, 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 and the power that's yielded by large contributions that um, uh, it's very unusual for anybody to get on our Nuclear Regulatory Commission who does not have the seal of approval from the nuclear industry. What makes uh, Alison McFarland's uh, appointment uh, more likely to happen than not is that she's being supported by the most powerful senator in the United States, uh, Senator Harry Reid, and that uh, no other industry-favored nominations on the commission will move unless she is paired with one of them. Yes, well, um, I have great hopes for Alison too. I just hope she has the strength. I told Hugh, her husband, you know, to 
Well, she needs lots of vitamins, let's be frank. I'm interviewing... Well, I mean, it's one of these jobs where you, you know, you sort of are expected to drink from a fire hydrant. It's, these are not easy jobs. <laughs> no. All right. Now, my special guest today is Bob Alvarez, a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he works on nuclear disarmament, environmental and energy policy. So, Bob, let's move on now to the analysis of the National Defence Authorisation Bill that is, um, I think, has just been passed by Congress. Um, well, I read... uh, no, not, not... Go on. Not exactly. It's, it was passed by the House of Representatives, uh, yes. one, one of the bodies of our Congress. But not the Senate. Yes, and, and the Senate is, uh, has... has uh, made some decisions now, but those the details of those decisions have yet to be announced. Well, um, you wrote an analysis of the Defence Authorisation Act, and my hair just about fell out. I nearly developed what we call in medicine alopecia areata, where you have areas on your scalp <laughs> where you have no hair. I have never read Well, anything. mine sort of fell out anyway, but not for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's because, yeah, well, I won't go into your physiology Bob, at this age. Um, I, I can't believe everything we've struggled for, struggled for for 40 years in terms of nuclear weapons reductions and everything. They're reversing the whole goddamn thing, excuse my French. Um, and I, I let's go point by point. Number one, well, this bill blocks the funding for implementation of the New START Treaty, blocks it, and the and reductions in thousands of non-deployed weapons known as the War Reserve, which is sort of in, in cupboards waiting to be used if necessary. And I'm, I want to ask you how many there are of non-deployed weapons to be used in retaliation against civilian populations unless, unless new nuclear weapons facilities and delivery systems are funded over the next 10 years, totaling $185 billion at a time when the Congress is struggling with the fact that they want to reduce uh, government spending so they're cutting Medicare and, you know, Social Security and things, but funding on nuclear weapons goes up $185 billion in the next 10 years. Please comment on this, Bob Alvarez. Well, I think that the, this... Um the, the Republicans in the, in the United States House of Representatives have put together a bill which uh, really is one of the most bellicose nuclear, represents one of the most bellicose nuclear armed policies of the United States since the height of the Cold War. Uh, and uh, it, is, uh, it is breathtaking in what they're trying to do. I mean, in addition to that, of course, they are pushing to redeploy nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula. Unbelievable. Uh, they want to uh, uh, basically raid the Treasury for even larger amounts of money to go to the nuclear weapons labs. They, what's sort of even more troubling about this is that they're, dis they're trying to dismantle the uh, safety, health, uh, and financial oversight of the nuclear weapons contractors and essentially give that authority to the contractors themselves. And uh, pointing to the fact is that, you know, this is something that the private sector does and, uh, and seems to work very well. It's not a, it's, it's a, it's an absurd comparison because, you know, we're, the private, the private sector doesn't make nuclear weapons. 
They haven't generated some of the largest inventories of radioactive waste in the world. They haven't had uh, their workers at at least 14 different nuclear weapons sites experience excess cancers and diseases from substances like beryllium. And and these these facilities are so ultra-hazardous that uh, none of the contractors will do business unless the government provides them with blanket indemnification for nuclear safety problems, even stemming from acts of criminal, criminal acts of gross negligence and willful misconduct. Uh, so now these, these members of Congress, the Republicans, seem to be taking their signals from the lobbyists of the contractors uh, and are trying to bestow what I consider to be inherent functions of government onto nuclear weapons contractors who are, are, not, are the last people you want to be self-policing. Uh, this is, you know, we, we've been through this, down this path before during the Cold War, and, and this whole system has been discredited by the enormous uh, environment, safety, and health legacy created uh, from the nuclear arms race. I mean, we've got a mess at, at nuclear energy sites in the United States uh, in terms of the just, man, you know, just one site alone, the Hanford site in Washington State, which made about two-thirds of the plutonium for the U.S. nuclear arsenal. That's considered the most contaminated zone in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, one, one plant that's being designed right now and constructed to deal with the radioactive waste resulting from the production of that plutonium uh, is probably going to cost on the order of $70 billion and take five to six decades to deal with. And probably won't work. Well, that's, yes. There are these other issues such as, you know, project failure. But, um, you know, we've been down this road. We've done this before, and we're now paying a bitter price. You know, um, we've had to to compensate some 50,000 workers in this country since the year 2000 for illnesses associated with radiation and, and exposure to other toxic substances. More than $7 billion have been paid out. Uh, to, to people who were put at, in harm's way during the course of making nuclear weapons, largely because of the philosophy and, the, and the, the system of letting contractors regulate themselves. And now these, these, these Republican congressmen are trying to roll back the clock at the behest of contractors who uh, really are only in it for the money. Uh, and so um, it's... it's uh, it's really quite a quite a, a statement. Uh, it's a you know, one of the most, as I said, one of the most reactionary statements of policy I have seen since uh, since those that were made uh, during the height of the Cold War of the 1950s. Well, Bob, who the hell wrote this thing? Who wrote it? Did it, did the defence contractors like Lockheed Martin and Bechtel and all the rest of the? Well, I think it was written by a combination of groups. I mean, having worked inside the Energy Department, yeah. which is responsible for this. I think this bill was written in large part by the National Nuclear Security Agency, the bureaucracy that runs our nuclear weapons program inside the Department of Energy. I don't think there's been any serious adult supervision by the leadership of the, of the Department of Energy or the White House over these people. And it's also been cobbled together by the nuclear weapons contractors, particularly uh, those contractors who run our national nuclear weapons laboratories. But, but, and uh, this is an example of, of the lack of what I call adult supervision by the Obama administration. Well, has this got any media attention? I mean, this is the, the most, almost the 
most outrageous thing I have ever read in my life. And I'm nearly 74 and I've read a lot of outrageous things, but this is almost the most outrageous. Well, I'm a a little more sanguine about what the Senate might do. Uh, The Senate is in the hands of the Democratic Party, which is our president's party. Uh, They certainly don't want to see any obstacles thrown in the way of implementing the START agreement. And uh, they have at least uh, the the majority members of that committee have expressed uh, their support for the Obama administration's policies, which, uh, to its credit, the Obama administration quickly came out and denounced this and threatened to veto it. Oh, so can Obama veto it? It, Well, uh, at least the threat is there. And so this is not over by any, by a long shot. Uh, And I think that, um, as I said, I'm not, I'm a little more sanguine about what the Senate might do. And I don't think the Senate will do anything near as crazy and irresponsible as what these House Republicans have done. Nevertheless, Um, I do know that Senator Kyle um, said to Obama, the Senate will only ratify the new START treaty you've negotiated with Putin and Medvedev if you allocate another, I think it was $85 billion for new Well, it's 185 if you include the delivery systems. $185 billion uh, for new nuclear weapon systems and the like. And Obama went along with that. And then, strike me dead, when the, when the vote came into the Senate, Senator Kyle had the gall to vote against START anyway, even though he demanded well, $185 billion. Well, what's happened now is that's all correct. And, uh, and I, I mean, his, 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 his policies and how he behaves have been very predictable. I mean, he envisions... Uh, a United States is more or less at a perpetual state of war, bristling with nuclear weapons. That's kind of ready to blow uh, up the planet. Very, very, very hard and very simplistic terms. How I see what his vision is and yeah. his idea of maintaining peace. Senator Kyle. Um, yep. Th- uh, that's right. But what what happened this year that's different is that the Obama administration is under a lot of pressure by these very same people to uh, reduce spending. And one of the things that they are very upset about is that he is he is deferring spending on funds for making uh, for building new nuclear weapons production facilities, and so the 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 Republicans see this as uh, as a violation of the deal that they struck, and so they're now taking actions to block funding until the Obama administration goes along with what they consider to be the original deal. So that's. Part of the dynamic that's involved here, but you know, um, to block funding on what we, we have a we have a nuclear arsenal right now whose destructive force is somewhere around 400 times more destructive than all explosives used by all combatants in World War II. Uh, we have about 2,500 nuclear warheads, according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, held in reserve that are not even deployed. Uh, we have about uh, somewhere on the order of 40,000 weapons that we have still intact that have been officially retired and discarded by the U.S. military that our nuclear weapons program is holding on to and refusing to dismantle. 40,000? 40%. Oh. Several thousand weapons, oh. warheads, are, are uh, essentially being held intact because Several of the refusal. Several thousand. 
okay. to spend any money to take them apart and get rid of them forever. They're in so, storage. So in total, walk, walk through the, the number of weapons, nuclear weapons America has. Um, several thousand, well, two and a half thousand in storage. Go on. We have about 25, well, depending on how, much, how many strategic weapons are taken down from the START Treaty, uh, uh, the number of, of, of actual weapons that the United States will have in deployment, and I'm counting warheads, not just yeah. delivery systems. No, warheads, bombs, I'm, count, I'm bombs. counting the warheads. Hydrogen bombs, uh, yes. We'll, we'll have, uh, uh, we should have somewhere on the order of maybe uh, 1,500 warheads that will be ultimately deployed after start one. We'll no, but no, about, but how many do you have now? Because start. Uh, we have a total got, now. Yes, I uh, want now. Oh, uh, we have approximately nine thousand five hundred warheads. There you go. These are these are estimates that are made by credible sources. They are not official estimates. Nine thousand five hundred. Yes, and you have to uh, make but, estimates. Of those nine 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 thousand five hundred, about four thousand five hundred have been officially discarded or retired by the military. They're no longer needed, but they remain intact. About 2,500 are in what we call the war reserve, and this is a uh, euphemism for uh, using weapons as a retaliatory strike against civilian populations if we civilian. Uh, have, uh, if nice. we launch a first strike and against Russia and Russia retaliates, then we go back and hit them with these other ones. And, you know, the basic bizarre logic of all this is that the winner of a nuclear war is the one that has the most weapons left over. Yeah, it's kind of the bizarre logic of all this, and but that's what we have, and we have a, a very powerful uh, bureaucracy within the government and contractors who are par- who are who who have a major say in this bureaucracy uh, that are are in a way uh, a, a rogue element within our government right now. They're really not under the kind of control that you would expect the president or the Congress to exercise over them. And a lot of this has to do with secrecy, isolation, and privilege that have been hallmarks of the nuclear arms race that they have been able to hold on to to keep people from knowing what the truth is about what the nature and extent of our arsenal is, how much is really needed. Uh, I have actually, in uh, in the past few years, uh, have changed my position in a very fundamental way. I believe that the nuclear weapons program, which is now in our Department of Energy, should be moved to the Defense Department, mm. uh, where because I think the mainstream military of the United States at this point in time clearly has a clear, clear-eyed recognition that these weapons are really not of any value or use to them. They are they are instruments of policy that have to do with the Cold War, but yet getting rid of them has to uh, involves taking on a very entrenched and powerful bureaucracy that is supported by by a rising reactionary political reactionary element of our of, of the Republican Party who see these you know these as symbols of strength and and hold on to these old ideas that uh, of, of of an America basically telling the world what to do with it because it's bristling with nuclear weapons now okay uh, you've got nine and a half thousand nuclear weapons hydrogen bombs most of them. How yep. many now the the Pentagon uses the word overkill in nuclear war like you kill them they stand up again you kill them they stand up again overkill 
How many times overkill of the world's population is 9,500 hydrogen bombs? I don't know that precise number. All I do know is that uh, estimates of the explosive power of those weapons are about four to 500 times greater than all the destruction used by explosions by all uh, 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 by all combatants in World War II. It's probably uh, at so least you, four I mean, times draw, over. I mean, it, the, probably... the issue has to do with how many times do you want the rubble to bounce. That's exactly right. And then we've got to talk about the Russians. Um, who are these people in this? The, who are these pathological sociopaths in the Department of Energy? What department are they? Are they in the Nuclear National Nuclear Security Agency, or where are they? And who are? I'd like you to name. Well, some. I mean, as I said, it's a, it's an isolated, secret, and privileged bureaucracy. That where these, the, it's in the Department of Energy. Yeah, but in, under uh, what? They, com- they, com- they, com- they command about a third of the agency's entire budget. A third. And it's the single largest expenditure of the Department of Energy. Yeah. I mean, you would think that we'd be doing things like, I mean, we spend about 10 times more on nuclear weapons in the Department of Energy than we do on energy conservation. 10 times. Uh, Still. This tells you something. Yeah. But who time, are they? Great. Is it Lytton Brooks? Or? Well, well the, 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 the real powers in the nuclear weapons program are the nuclear weapons labs, Los Alamos, Lawrence Livermore in California, Sandia National Laboratory in New Mexico, uh, Los Alamos in New Mexico. And they're contractors, which are attend, are essentially consortia that involve companies such as uh, the Bechtel Corporation, uh, the, Patel, the Patel Institute, uh, and the like. What else? Name, so, name more of them. Bechtel, Battelle, Lockheed Martin? Not so much. You used to be, but not so much. Rockwell. The, they 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 make their money off the delivery system. Yeah, they do the delivery. Uh, we're talking about we're talking about the nuclear warheads now, which yeah. is, you know the other the other piece. Of so it. is it mostly and that's Bechtel? Where the Department Bechtel? Of Energy comes in. Is it mostly Bechtel and and Battelle Institute are amongst the the the, the leader leading contractors who have formed consortia mm-hmm. that run. Uh, most of the nuclear weapons sites right now. So is the power within the leaders of the nuclear weapons labs? Is that it's what you really... It's a bureaucracy that's not under control. Yeah. That's right. It, it is not under... I mean, we used to, you know, in a in dark humor while working in the Department of Energy, we referred to it as an absence of adult supervision. And uh, there, this, this, this system... Uh, that's, you know, in a way, one of the more powerful elements of what President Eisenhower warned us about in terms of calling it, declaring it a military-industrial complex has not been under effective control by this administration or by the Congress for quite a while now. Why? And Why? Uh, well, I think it has to do with the power they wield in the reactionary political circles of this country, which seem to be growing ever larger. Uh, it has to do with the power they have over information, the secrecy that they wield, and their ability to command large budgets because they are located in areas that dominate the wage and benefit structures of geographic areas, which uh, in, the, in, national, in, our, in politics in the United States can make or break statewide elections. So they use all these powers to their fullest extent, and they also make sure that the people who represent them are on the strategic important committees that control their funding. So uh, 
this is sort of a, you know, it's a classic example of what President Eisenhower had warned us against in his last uh, address to the nation uh, in 1960. This is the most unvarnished and uncontrolled aspect of our military-industrial complex that I can think of. Now, maybe it's because of my own uh, experience and bias, but uh, that's my opinion. We should call it the Department of Annihilation. Why... Why hasn't President Obama, who seems deeply concerned about the threat of nuclear war and nuclear weapons, had the cojones to take on these people, Bob Alvarez, and do something about this issue, which every second of every day threatens the earth with annihilation? Let's be frank, because the weapons are still on hair trigger alert. It's all secret. Nobody talks about it. What on earth is going on? Can you analyze the situation? Well, I think it's an example of the you know uh, of of how some presidents and most presidents not I mean the last president I'm aware of that actually had real serious control over these people was President Herbert Walker George Herbert Walker Bush yeah in the late eighties and early nineties George and the first then, uh, George the first <laughs> I guess you would might say but he uh, uh, he was he was the last. Uh, president that really exercised uh, a fairly powerful control over that. And, and, and the way he did that is that he asked the mainstream military to advise him as to what was needed. Mm-hmm. And what's happened is that the mainstream military has been pretty much shut out of this process. Really? And the, the people inside of the military who represent the, the interests of, of the nuclear weapons program have been given uh, a great deal of authority over making recommendations and advice to the president, to the Congress, and the like. So uh, this has to do, I think, a lot with how they have positioned themselves. And I think we have to understand that we're living in a day and age right now where the presidency of the United States is not as all-powerful as we think it might be. Well, it could be. I mean, he is the commander-in-chief. He has That's the pul- absolutely the bully right, and, there, and I, I understand, and I think that there are, uh, you know, we certainly have quite a great deal of historic precedents but, yeah. that uh, point to, you know, presidents that have done things, and more often than not, uh, Republican presidents have done more to rein in nuclear weapons than Democratic, unfortunately, but that's, uh, I mean, I have no, 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 good reason for that other than uh, uh, the Republicans that have taken on this this, this uh, element of, of our national security establishment have been pretty tough-minded about it and have prevailed. And that's what you need. You need to be tough-minded and you can't let them push you around. And you have to pay attention to them on a constant basis because they're busy, constantly busy, undermining any effort that would threaten their future. Their future, except that their efforts efforts threaten the future of life on the planet. Well, I mean that's the that's the logical extreme of all this, of course. I, it just takes my breath away, Bob, to, to, for two reasons. One, the average person has no idea about these dynamics at all. Has no idea that there are these weapons ready to go, with the press of the button and a three-minute decision time by. Obama or Putin to, to annihilate life on Earth. They have no idea. They have no idea of the dynamics in the Department of Energy which drives this whole incestuous, wicked 
uh, nuclear weapons situation. They have no idea that people in the Congress want to redeploy weapons on the Korean Peninsula, for God's sake. No idea there are thousands of weapons well, in storage I mean, I, ready to be used on civilians if necessary, sort of well, thing. Well, I've been, I don't know, I don't know what to tell you, Helen, other than I've been working in this business as long as you have, perhaps not quite as long, but, uh, and what I observe happening is that things tend to ebb and flow. And uh, I think that in the end, I mean, uh, uh, nuclear weapons are on the losing end of this proposition in the end, when the final analysis is made, uh, because they are proving to be such a millstone around the neck of nations that have so many of them that they really don't know what to do with them, and also have and then root and then have to deal with the enormous legacies. I mean, we haven't even talked about the uh, the profound, profound. Uh, harm that's been caused to the human environment from the Russian nuclear weapons program, uh, which in many respects is far worse than what was created in the United States. Why don't you address that briefly, Bob Alvarez? Well, I mean, I think, you know, after the Cold War, uh, a lot more information became known uh, because of the openness of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the openness of the Russian government. And we learned that the Russian nuclear weapons program had had uh, several catastrophic accidents uh, that uh, proved to be, you know, in many respects comparable to Chernobyl that were simply covered up. Describe the them. Weapons. Describe them briefly. Well, in 1957, there was an explosion at a high-level nuclear waste tank or operation at a site called Chelyabinsk, which is now called Mayak. And this is where they made plutonium for nuclear weapons. And this tank exploded because it was probably due to a, what they call an organonitrate reaction. Uh, 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 you know, such you know, diesel fuel and, uh, I mean, uh, you know, homemade bombs are made from uh, nitrogen fertilizer and, mm. uh, and diesel fuel. It's the same kind of chemistry, except these were in high-level waste tanks. And they had the wrong chemistry, wrong, wrong time. They had a, a massive explosion that released an enormous amount of radioactivity that rendered a very large area, uninhabitable, uh, but they did not evacuate people. Uh, they left them there to essentially suffer the effects. Uh, there were hundreds of nuclear weapons tests in Kazakhstan uh, that created an enorm wreaked enormous havoc on the people and the environment. There were numerous underground nuclear weapons explosions. Uh, in the same area in the 1960s at uh, Mayak in Chelyabinsk, uh, they were dumping high-level radioactive waste directly into a lake called Lake Karachai. And because of, of, uh, of drought conditions, the lake dried up, and the sediments on the bottom of the lake resuspended and contained these massive amounts of radioactivity that led to, uh, in a way, even a worse uh, radiological catastrophe than the 1957 explosion. Uh, these are the kinds of events we've learned about. Uh, the Russians have also did direct discharges of high-level radioactive waste into major and important regional aquifers. Uh, the United States, while we we did a little bit of that, not so not, we didn't do it with such um, unfettered brutality, I guess is a way to describe it. Uh, these these nuclear weapon sites were built by slaves. Slaves who were who were living in gulags. Really, and these are these are the kinds of things that the Russian nuclear weapons program is all about. Now Russia is holding on to its nuclear weapons 
uh, in large part because they see this as something that gives them status and prestige and offsets the weaknesses that have, that have built up over the years because of their um, you know, decline of their military and, and their economic situation. So, um, and there's a very large, the, the, the nuclear weapons and nuclear program of Russia from a bureaucratic standpoint is much larger than we have in this country, and they wield really? a great deal of power as a bureaucracy. Uh, Russia is still, you know, overcoming its uh, its past in terms of how its system is operating, and these bureaucracies still operate like fiefdoms. So, uh, in a way, there are several institutional similarities between our nuclear weapons bureaucracy yeah. and the Russian nuclear weapons bureaucracy. The big difference, though, is that we do have um, a democratic system that if it were allowed to operate oh, yeah. in the way it's supposed to, there would there would be much there would be much greater change circumstances. Yeah, well, we could we could discuss that at length how money really runs America, and it's an autocracy, not a democracy, actually in action. But talking about that tank that exploded in Russia at Mayak, there are tanks at Hanford, Washington, are still are there not? with mixed waste, chemical waste, and hugely high-level waste, which still could explode with hydrogen explosions? Isn't that the worry? There are 177 tanks, underground tanks, containing about 54 million gallons of radioactive waste left over from making plutonium. And these tanks are, uh, how do you best describe them? Well, anywhere from a half a million to a million gallons in capacity. Uh, they would be able to, the floor of the tanks would probably be able to hold a, uh, a basketball court, a, a professional basketball court. Huge. Uh, they would be the size, some, some of these tanks, uh, these tanks are bigger than some of the capital dumps of our, of our state governments. Uh, these wastes are in a liquid form. They're unstable, and because of the chemicals that were put in them and the interaction of the radioactivity with water, uh, they they continue to generate flammable and explosive gases, particularly organic vapors and hydrogen. And in order to remove the contents, you know, because they've had to dry out the waste as much as they can to prevent leakage, about a third of these tanks have leaked over a million gallons of high-level waste, which are now in the, in the ground and slowly penetrating into the groundwater, which eventually enters uh, the Columbia River, one of the largest rivers in the country. Uh, because these we, these tanks have leaked so much, they've pumped out as much liquid as they can, which is a good thing to prevent further leakage. But to remove these wastes, you have to re-dissolve them because they're in, a, they're in salt form. And that means adding water. And when you start to add water, the radiation interacts with the, uh, with the water in, in what's called uh, hydrolysis and peels off the hydrogen uh, uh, from the... Uh, from the water, and then that then becomes a problem because you have to be concerned about buildup of hydrogen gas inside of these giant head head spaces of these tanks, or hydrogen gas building up in pipes and things like that as you transfer them. So these wastes are are inherently dangerous, and they're of a nature, just like spent fuel, is that if you were to take a you know a bucket, uh, which is not possible, or you know it's certainly not advisable. But if you were to put that bucket in a crowded area, like a restaurant or something like that, you know, within a matter of minutes, everybody there would receive a lethal dose. Yeah. So it's extremely radioactive material, and it also has material in it that remains dangerous 
uh, literally for hundreds of thousands, in some cases millions of years. Plutonium. Well, plutonium being the dominant yep. uh, concern. Uh, there, there's about oh, a little over 1.1 metric tons of plutonium in these tanks. In total. Uh, estimated in the tanks alone, and probably another ton was dumped directly into the ground. With the, when when a millionth of a gram, if inhaled, is is will will cause cancer or maybe less. well, you know, ten, tens of micrograms. Yeah, uh, at least, you know, I mean, we were talking about microscopic amounts. That's right. Well, it's uh, always said a millionth of a gram. Yeah, some people are moderating that now. Well, look, Bob, um, we've pretty well come to the end of our time. We could go on talking, I think, for the next twenty four hours. There's so much oh. to discuss. <laughs> uh, today is Memorial Day here in, in the United States, and so I'm trying to uh, not remember this stuff. <laughs> I think you can go and have another glass of wine now, huh, at your neighborhood party. You've certainly earned it. For us, it's very early in the morning in Australia, but for you, it's party time on Memorial Day. What a day to be talking about this sort of thing, but actually very apt. And Bob Alvarez, I thank you so much for your dedication over the years and for the enormous amount of good that you were able to do when you were in the Department of Energy with Hazel O'Leary. I honour you for that, and as do many other people within the United States, and for the work that you you. continue to do. I'm very flattered. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, And I wish we had more time to talk, but it's now, I think, red wine time for you. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you, Bob, very much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My guest today on If You Love This Planet was Robert Alvarez, a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he currently is focused on nuclear disarmament, environmental and energy policies. Thanks for listening once again today, people. Um We will be back again next week with obviously another fascinating program. If you wish to donate, we would be extraordinarily grateful. We must keep this program on air no matter what. Um, You can go to our website at ifyoulovethisplanet.org and there is a donate uh, button there that you can press and donate some money. Also, if you like the program, please suggest to your friends and relatives that other community stations and Pacifica stations across the country uh, would play this program every week. I'd be grateful for that too. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye for now. You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States, including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, ifyoulovethisplanet.org.